0: Welcome to the Tech Analyst Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, good to talk to you again. Ryan, how you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. We were kibitzing before the show started about uh, how busy this week has been, and I think the topics we cover are, are really kind of just a partial list of what we'll what we actually kind of had to dive into during the week. So Um, Let's just jump into it and save everybody some time. AMD launched their second generation Ryzen processors uh, just this week, Ryzen 2000 series parts. For people who are interested, the, the technical kind of architectural differences are somewhat minimal. They call this the Zen Plus design. This is not Zen 2. That's something that we'll probably see next year. Zen Plus is, you know, some tweaks to cache latencies, some tweaks to memory latencies, some improvements in precision boost algorithms, which basically allows the processor to take advantage of uh, thermal and electrical headroom for uh, higher clock speeds in those instances. But uh, and and the reception to these processors, I believe, has been exceedingly positive throughout uh, throughout the media. It's it's one thing. It's interesting because there was there was a very different vibe about this launch than there was the launch last year. Last year it was a humongous ordeal for AMD. They were claiming you know fifty two percent IPC improvements over their previous design. This was their first attempt to really get back into the high-end consumer spaces, if you will. And uh, this time they you know they kind of had to temper some expectations. They were talking about you know five to ten percent improvements combining IPC and clock speed adjustments. And uh, it really felt like they they met those goals in a lot of different workloads. Is that kind of what you saw from the the media coverage on your side?
1: So I did, and I think like you, I had a system uh, or some parts uh, for a while to actually you know test some of this stuff out. And uh, AMD going in had had two things it needed to address to to fully maximize their potential. Listen. You know they gained uh, two two points of market share, so they're doing well. But um, you know AMD wants to do a, a lot better than that. And you know one of these areas was primarily gaming, mm-hmm. um, you know either DX nine or you know uh, modern games at at, at, at 1080p. And I, I would say that they, for the most part, uh, stuck that message. It wasn't perfect, but. I feel like they just improved the areas that weren't there in the first generation, which, in a way, is is all they all they really needed to do. I think. So I, I think they they met those expectations.
0: Yeah, they on the gaming side specifically, that was kind of the the issue they had with the Ryzen 1000 series, with that there was some concerns about the the performance, specifically at 1080p, as you ratcheted up that resolution the impact of the processor on performance is minimized and it's you know more heavily weighed towards the gpu in this generation you know you got extra clock speeds out of it you improved internal cache latencies which is going to bump up uh some of that some of that cpu performance which in the instances of gaming like 1080p where the cpu is more of the concern then it was able to close that gap i don't i, I would wager. i would say it didn't close the gap completely it's not like uh the new ryzen 7 2700, 2700x is faster than the 8700k but it's much closer and then as you get that uh, uh resolution higher 25 by 14 4k then the impact of the cpu is minimized and you can you can comfortably make the assertion that either of these processors would be really good for that one of the uh uh, oh, And also in performance, I would say, you know, before this launch, AMD had the advantage in multi-threaded workloads. If you looked at uh, video encoding, 3D rendering, uh, really, really heavy multitasking, something that would load down all eight cores of one of their higher-end parts, that um, they were already doing better than the six-core Intel solutions. And that basically got expanded. The advantage was expanded with this uh, with this release. Um what I found maybe most interesting from an analysis point point of view is that this is this is their second this is their second swing, right? They needed to prove that they could execute on a roadmap, that they could release things on time, that they could, you know, do what they said they were going to do, and and for a company that is trying to rededicate itself, reprove itself in the market to consumers. But also to OEMs that are going to use their processors and people that were using their processors and servers as well. Like they need to prove to them that that they can that they can execute that that Lisa and her team are, are able to do just that. And I, and I feel like they were they were able to do that with this. It's not a it's not like a a huge performance increase again, but they did what they said they were going to do. It was on time. It was on schedule. There weren't any you know hiccups or problems with the launch. I think they did very well.
1: That's right. Great comment. It's hard to believe. Uh, a little bit over a year ago everybody was questioning this for for good reasons because AMD had gone for multiple years without having what I would consider a a hit Uh, and execution problems there were fab issues um, and and here we are talking about AMD uh, almost taking for granted what they they're going to do what they say they're going to do and that is a marked difference and improvement of where they were just a year ago it's impressive
0: yeah it really is what kind of impact do you think this has on on intel moving forward right i think i think everybody can agree that you know ryzen was something that that pushed intel's consumer division along i don't think they redeveloped products for it but they probably adjusted roadmaps they adjusted timelines you know accelerated the release of the 8700K for example do you think this continues to do that to intel?
1: I think it does. I think Intel has has innovated as much as they thought that they needed to innovate in order to to move things forward on on the PC side. Yeah. And they had been putting uh, most of their effort into lowering uh, power versus working on big IPC improvements, and yeah, they have Intel credit. They did, they did improve their integrated graphics from from gen to gen. But uh, with that said, uh, I think that Intel is busy working on, you know, the knockout punch here for uh, for AMD. Now, the challenge is, is that you know each architecture and each chip is designed to work inside of a specific FAB node and process and transistor. Yeah. And if those aren't aligned then you have this great architecture that's sitting there let's say it was designed for 10 nanometer or 7 nanometer or, or, or something like that. If, if your FAB roadmap and execution isn't connected to your development, then you have an you have a mismatch. You have an impedance mm-hmm. mismatch. So that's what I do think is going on. I do think that Intel has uh, uh, some ten nanometer designs that are really good, but they just can't uh, seem to make them yeah. in, in, in a high volume way. Uh, again, those are my words, not not Intel's words, but that's what I think is going on.
0: Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Huawei also had an event changing gears here. Uh, I did not attend, and I know you had some some guys that did attend, a technology event uh, that I think sparked some, some interesting discussions. Uh, it, again, particularly around the more recent U.S. and China trade concerns and issues that have popped up. Um, you know, one of the things that I wrote about kind of in relation to Huawei is just how how dramatic of a change this company has gone through over the last, you know, let's say five years or so. Uh, I wrote a piece on market watch that talked about in what ways they were trying to mirror the pathway of Apple, right? Whether that be building their own chips as opposed to using off the shelf products or going uh, down that road. Right. So they, they, they now own the entire hardware system from chip to board design to production, to sales to the customer. They, they, do not yet build an operating system but they did you know a couple years ago claim that they were working on their own operating system i don't know to what level or how deep they are into that Uh, but huawei is even potentially more invested in this market because they develop the infrastructure technology as well from cell sites to servers to all that uh, that that apple does not Um, and that it kind of puts even huawei in a more unique position than, uh, than even Apple does, and, and you know, well outside the realm of what Qualcomm does, or even even what Samsung does. Um, and this this did kind of wager. It brought me to the, to a question of: Would Huawei ever sell its chips to third parties? Right now, just like Apple, they're only using their own processors and their own devices. Uh, but because of the U.S.-China trade, you know, threats. That are, that are looming. Right now, you know, cell phone technology is kind of excluded from that. But if Qualcomm were kept out of selling, you know, prevented from selling its chips to Chinese companies, if Huawei decided to sell chips to other OEMs, they could become even more powerful in that way, right, uh, and expand outside of the realm of what Qualcomm or Apple is already doing. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on anything from the event specifically or how... You kind of view this 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 world we're in now, where literally two months ago I didn't feel like we had any tension between Chinese companies and American companies uh, outside of you know not wanting to sell the specific phones through AT and and now it seems like it's a much more important discussion for us to be having.
1: A lot has changed in 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 six months. Uh, that's for sure. So I had three of my analysts uh, out there, um, Will, uh, Anshul, and and Matt. And I didn't go, but I watched the keynote uh, online uh, that they had. And their rotating CEO was asked that specific question, would you uh, sell chips from your high silicon chip division? And of course, his, his answer uh, was no. But With all of the tension right now where essentially the U.S. uh, Commerce Department gave ZTE uh, the death penalty that they can't buy chips from Qualcomm and they can't even license Android from from Google, this all comes into question. So I do believe that we could see a day where where that happens. I think what's more likely is that you'll see MediaTek get more business and even though MediaTek tech is out of taiwan and not china MediaTek tech tech does uh, send most of their chips uh, into china and that's right. what i think uh, it, it is going to happen now while the press stories have just started to come out of all the tension in china and with all the white house rhetoric what has been happening over the last decade is is this has been brewing i mean uh, as little as five years ago, you saw companies like Cisco, IBM, EMC, Dell missing their numbers because uh, of China. And that just how hard it was to, to sell into China because the Chinese government said that you need to buy uh, China. And the reality is that, that as an American company, doing business in China is tough. You can't incorporate. You have to do a JV. And that typically means technology transfer mm. or splitting profits so you know it's uh it's it's tough and I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better yeah. and I do believe the administration is is trying to flex uh, flex their muscles and I think Silicon Valley executives, even though for the most part hate Trump and the administration are yep. quietly, qu- silently doing golf claps.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's also, it's also a pretty big risk, right? Because if you're, if you're a company that has, you know, put out your five year or three year outlook and you projected X percent growth or X percent of your revenue coming in from China, that now all has to change or at least be very fluid. Um, and if, if we know anything, it's that, Stock markets do not like variability. They don't like question marks uh, on your revenue plans, and uh, I think we're seeing some of that. Some of that reflected. Uh, I wanted to talk real quick about uh, Intel's and, and its push into FPGAs. Intel obviously bought Altera back in twenty fifteen. I think it was. It was a price tag of sixteen billion dollars, and you know I, I think even back then. It made a lot of sense for Intel to get into this into this field. Uh, they were laggards in terms of they were behind against you know obviously the biggest name being Nvidia and this kind of highly specialized multi uh, uh, parallel compute models. Um, and Intel wanted to be able to jumpstart their way in. And before they went down the road of, you know, hiring Roger Kodori and creating this new discrete GPU project internally, they decided to buy uh, an FPGA company. Um, That has kind of uh, surmised in or has kind of resulted in now Dell, I think is it, no, it's HP, HP, no, I'm sorry, Dell EMC and Fujitsu are now selling servers that integrate these FPGAs on board, and they're talking about some pretty substantial performance improvements. Uh, but as with all FPGA acceleration, it's very algorithm or platform or problem specific. These are not; these are the exact opposite of general-purpose processors once they're programmed, right? So Intel stated that tests with the Aria 10 GX. See a 2x improvement in options trading performance, 3x better storage compression, and 20x faster real time data analytics, obviously, compared to their own Xeon uh, platforms. And those are some significant, significant improvements. They did, quote, one software partner that provides uh, high performance data processing for big data outlets. And they built an FPGA powered system that achieved, quote, an eight fold improvement in algorithm execution. And twice the speed in options calculations. So clearly, that's uh, that's an important an important avenue for them to dive down. And now they're they're not just talking about it. They're not just showing these products. They're selling them into servers. These these OEMs are now selling them uh, to customers. And it seems like we've got an interesting battle looming between what once would have been Altera and Xilinx, but now Intel and Xilinx.
1: Yeah. So I'm really happy to see Intel embrace heterogeneous computing. I mean, is as, as short, uh, as few years back, maybe three years, Intel was all in on x86 CPUs. And uh. that doesn't mean that, that they didn't do GPUs. It doesn't mean that they didn't do some uh, fixed function ASICs. Uh, they did. But... The future was all. I mean, even Larrabee and yeah. derivatives of Larrabee were 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 derivatives of, of x86. So, yep. and they went big. And it wasn't only Altera; it was Altera, it was Movidius, mm. um, it was Nirvana, and and even when you look at the capabilities um, um, of of I'm blanking the uh, the the auto uh, acquisition they they mobilize. Oh right! It yeah. Is is primarily uh, acceleration? So th- they went all in, and then you know throw Raja Kaduri onto the woodpile, and you have to expect a discrete uh, GPU. So that that to me is a, a positive thing, and, and it is. It has really opened it up because uh, Intel has the capability to bring what I think is is equally as important is a new type of programming environment. Yeah, where it's easier because that's the biggest challenge with anything that has um, special optimization. Uh, NVIDIA improved it significantly with CUDA. Mm -hmm. and, And listen, you know, NVIDIA has the best hardware and software today for the highest end, but that wasn't always the case. The reason that people stuck with NVIDIA was because of the software and the software tools. They invested almost a decade into CUDA, and and here we are. So I I love it that Intel's doing it. It brings more competition, and I think as we move uh, forward into the future, we're going to see a lot more comparisons and competition between FPGAs and uh, GPUs.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the software stuff because I do think that's – as important as anything, Intel has you know 30 years of experience building compilers and building developer tools, and that's something that they bring to the table that uh, is, is very complex. It requires a lot of a lot of uh, you know historical knowledge to combine acceleration libraries and frameworks and SDKs and that type of thing into a tool that lowers the barrier of entry for development, and that's how you get people on board. And you're you're exactly right. That's that is what. NVIDIA did with, with CUDA and teaching it in schools and, and, and educating developers. And Intel's hoping to do the same thing uh, through, uh, through their FPGA models as well. I think a lot of the news this week, some of the other stories we'll talk about focus around security. Uh, so you want to talk about Microsoft's uh, Azure Sphere. And some of the interesting stuff around this, like it's built on Linux, which was a shock to many, I believe.
1: Yeah, so uh, with all of with security becoming more and more important in the industry, you're seeing a lot of people jump in. And uh, as opposed to security being you know, kind of the side story, it's becoming the primary story. And uh, first off, uh, Microsoft, You know, just when you thought it was safe to go outside, uh, Uh, Microsoft announced Azure Sphere and Azure Sphere is an MCU yes a chip that Microsoft designed all the way to the RTL Uh, their operating system is not uh, Windows IoT it is based on Linux which is the first Linux operating system that they will have ever brought out like this now Sure, there was a a, a piece of uh, a Linux core that they did for their own networking in Azure, but that doesn't count as it's not really out uh, in the wild. And, and that blew people away. And then you connect the uh, the MCU with the Linux operating system with the security service, and you mm. you have the underlying guts of uh, of an IoT system that can be put into toys, to cameras, to you know, pretty much anything that just needs enough power uh, uh, that that has an MCU. Now, this RTL will be licensed to companies like uh, NXP, Qualcomm, and MediaTek. So, Hmm. you know, it's not like they're developing a relationship with TSMC themselves. Uh, They are going uh, through real uh, chip makers. But, you know, it, it, it blew me away, and... I think what this demonstrates to me is is just how much Microsoft will invest to be a player in IoT in areas where you normally wouldn't expect Microsoft to be a player in, yeah. in very small, small endpoints. They already have a gateway solution, and it's called Azure IoT. Uh, and this takes it all the way to the very uh, edge of it. And there we have
0: it. Microsoft
1: yeah, is an IoT platform player with their own chip. It's
0: it's 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 just really interesting, right? It's based on Linux. It's it's a it's a piece of hardware that they're building, um, and I think you're right that there is you know renewed and you know. I think it's a good idea that we have this renewed emphasis on security, especially in the wake of everything that's happened since you know January and Spectre meltdown and this this revised look at how, what impact hardware can have on this. Do you feel like Microsoft is the right company to at least, if not be the biggest player, but be one of the key players in figuring out the security problem long term?
1: My short answer is yes, and let me explain. So security is 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 becoming such a big issue that currently enterprises are looking at, they string together 15 or 20 different companies' security products, and that alone is, is causing a huge burden. So what happens is these enterprises have holes in their security, and they're putting most of their time stringing together these 20 vendors. So companies like Microsoft, uh, like uh, Cisco uh, are, are really, by the way, in Palo Alto Networks uh, are realizing that and, and they're either creating platforms uh, and or they're creating their own end-to-end security offerings that come pre-integrated that, that have one throat to choke. So from that point of view, I would say yes. The other benefit that I think Microsoft brings to the table is that they have what they're calling the intelligent security graph. And I, mm-hmm. you know, before you start laughing, I mean, everybody has their own graph, right? Yeah, for sure. Facebook has the social graph. Google has the search graph. Everybody has a graph. In fact, uh, Cisco announced that they have the WebEx graph. But anyways, if you look at how many endpoints that are out there and how many uh, Azure, I mean, you're looking at billions and trillions of signals, as Microsoft calls them, a month. And uh, what that does is it gives Microsoft the ability to uh, be able to preempt uh, also an early warning radar system mm. and and pretty much tell the industry uh, based on uh, what they're seeing. And what they did is they, they actually... Have an API that companies can actually plug into uh, as well. Huh. So it's not just a Microsoft thing, but you can, just like you can plug into the infamous uh, social graph yeah. uh, with Facebook, you can plug into Microsoft's intelligent security graph and hmm. make your security system better. And a few companies uh, jumped on. So I do think that Microsoft will be. Uh, one of the last people standing when it comes to end-to-end security.
0: Interesting. Intel, obviously Microsoft wasn't the only company making some some news during the week from RSA. Uh, the, it, Intel did the same, and this they did some interesting stuff. Uh, they have a new, as you wrote in your Forbes piece, threat detection technology that basically offloads the memory scanning from the cpu to the intel integrated graphics right so this is if you remember way back in the day when we talked about uh uh, amd's hsa and and the hsa foundation and heterogeneous systems architecture and how we were going to use all these different compute components for different things this is one of the best integrations of that idea obviously it's not hsa specific or anything like that but the idea of offloading stuff to uh Processors that can either better handle it and then free up your other resources for standard uh, uh, computing practices, I think, is is really awesome. Did they talk any detail about what the you know kind of performance uplift was or what the reduction on CPU consumption was for this?
1: Yeah, they did. So, so this gets back to our conversation about 15 minutes ago about Intel getting serious about heterogeneous computing, and mm. good, good things are starting to happen. Five years ago, this was done on the CPU, uh, and now they're they're putting some effort in, into doing this on the GPU. Yep. The numbers that that I got were that this would normally take a put a twenty percent burden on the CPU, and it, it's now only two percent uh, burden on the CPU, and the rest is offloaded to the uh, to the GPU. And the other thing is, the GPU I think is the right piece of silicon to do this because. The type of scanning you're doing for memory scanning is a very highly parallel yeah. activity using very small chunks of data, and that's just perfect for the uh, perfect for uh, for the GPU. And I think this is just the the beginning of it. Uh, I think we're going to see uh, Intel use the best piece of silicon, regardless of what it is, to do uh, certain uh, uh, tasks and one thing that really got me to wonder, though, was, wow, how would this work on uh, a higher performance GPU from NVIDIA or or something like uh, AMD?
0: All right.
1: Anyways, the other the other uh, thing that Intel brought out uh, at the uh, at the RSA show was um, uh, uh, telemetry. So the notion of telemetry goes, you know essentially, it, it's having more data and, and signals. Right. And Cisco, uh, who's number one market share by far in the corporate enterprise market for the core switching, okay, uh, has a lot of telemetry. And then they also have a data product called Tetration, which is essentially a a giant data store uh, in that runs on uh, Cisco uh, UCS systems. So This is the first of what Intel is saying is going to be multiple announcements where Cisco and Intel are going to share data uh, or those signal points very uh, similarly in the way that we talked about Microsoft to uh, increase the purview into potential and real-time security threats.
0: That's pretty impressive. Um, And it sounds like an incredibly complex thing to, to bridge that that data to that compute capability. And, you know, I, I guess that's kind of been the holdup of security issues from the outset, right? Is the complexity of data sharing people being hesitant to want to share that information because of its proprietary nature. But it uh, appears that some of these guys are, are getting over that in the in the actual name of, of security for customers and consumers, um, which is... Which is, which is pretty good. I guess Intel also talked about the Intel Security Essentials. It uh, looks, looks like a root of trust hardware capabilities across their server and PC and, and kind of their edge processors. Was, was there anything new on this uh, than what we had seen before? So,
1: yes and no. I, I think what we had seen is slightly different variations of root of trust across Atom Core and Xeon, yeah. And what they're saying here is that it's all going to be the same. And okay, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm trying to figure out exactly the strategic play that Intel is running here. Whether it's efficiency, where hey, I don't have to create three different implementations of all of this. I can just create one. Or mm-hmm. is this reinforcing why? you should be buying Intel from the gateway to, you know, sorry, the endpoint to the gateway to the data center. Right. Using Atom, Core, and Xeon uh, all, all the way through. C- could be all of them together. I know from an ISV standpoint, it certainly makes it it easier to work with Intel if the root of trust uh, is the same between yeah. all the chips. doesn't necessarily make it more secure, uh, it just makes it uh, easier if it's, to secure.
0: And if it's easier to integrate, it's going to be integrated more often and more effectively. And thus, I think the net-net is that it does become more secure because of that, I would say.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good argument.
0: Yeah. Let's uh, finish up talking about HP. They uh, had uh, their executive forum, talked a lot about what the success of their business groups has been. They talked They talked about gaming quite a bit, actually. You mentioned here that the OMEN segment is up to a $1 billion revenue business for them.
1: Yeah, I, I tell you what, it blew me away. Uh, and I, I told uh, their SVP Kevin Frost that I had written off the Omen brand just because I didn't think they were doing much, and I was paying a lot more attention to, let's say, Alienware.
0: Right. Yeah. And same they here.
1: And he said, "Yeah, a billion-dollar business." And I said, "Where?" <laughs> and Kevin said, "Outside of the U.S." And I said, "Okay, uh, I, I, I get it." And HP hmm. doesn't normally, uh, be, you know, pound their chest. Uh, they don't usually talk about this stuff, but. At the event, I mean, they just they they cited third-party data from NPD, GfK, and IDC that that says that they're they're kicking butt in, in areas like we already know their number one unit market share, but you know they gained seven points of market share. Uh, over Apple in the premium space, and that's uh, Notebook's $800 uh, and and more. So mm. in addition to the Omen being a billion-dollar business, gaining market share on Apple was uh, blowing me away. Uh, I was yeah. I was rough on HP five years ago on their premium, but I have to tell you I've, I've used their products in the last three years uh, a lot, and, and the improvement is just... Uh, it's impressive. But, yeah, with that, uh, they, like Dell, are bringing out a more, it's funny, mainstream gaming portfolio uh, called, you know, HP Pavilion Gaming. Uh, Gaming is is just such a a huge industry. The content alone is bigger than uh, movies and and music combined. So, uh, it's huge. This is... Designed for let's call it the more mainstream gamer. It starts at uh, $7.99, not let's say $12.99 like uh, an Omen. Uh, it, it uses I would call it middle of the road uh, uh, components, not you know stratospheric type of, of price points that, that let's say Omen and and Alienware would use. Right, and it's just jumping on the whole bandwagon of of gaming being cool. Um, I think.
0: Yeah. So I was gonna say. Think I think. I think it's interesting that uh, both, you know, all, all these OEMs have been getting into the the mainstream gaming side, and it's not a coincidence that they're doing so. Uh, that if you look at some of the Taiwan-based system OEMs, your ASUS, your MSIs of the world, they've they've been really targeting this. You know, they have their high-end gaming machines, their fifteen hundred dollar plus gaming laptops, but they've also been building more into that mainstream budget level. And I think that's been getting a lot of attention as more and more people start to understand the performance implications of the GPUs they're using, that the display they're using might only be 1080p, that they don't need a $2,000 machine to get the gaming they want out of it. They're less likely to attach it to an external display that's running at a higher resolution. That this is definitely a growth segment of the market, right? And we've seen this for several years as well, that the there there is a... Still a very strong DIY, you know, desktop PC segment, but a lot of those people are now moving towards mobile devices for their gaming. I I get questions all the time about, hey, I want to get a laptop that I also want to do some gaming on, but I want it to be thin and light, and I don't want it to be, you know, a, a three-inch thick, twenty-two-inch wide machine. What what are my options? And you know, before some of these announcements, the options were all those Taiwanese OEMs. And now Dell and HP have have some as well, Lenovo too. So I, it makes sense there to get into that space.
1: It is, and from my conversations with the big 3 OEMs, they're making a lot of profit on 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 these units. So, you know, yay, yay OEMs who have had a hard time in consumer making any money and really used it as a loss leader for their their commercial yeah. division. So, yeah. The other thing they did is they, you know, it's it, although we're always enamored with let's say the Envy's and the Specters and the Dell XPS's uh, and things like that, uh, HP upgraded their Pavilion, their overall Pavilion line, and and really, you know, pulled some premium features down there. They they decreased the the size of the Pavilion notebooks by a third. Heck, they're even pulling uh, Optane in. To, to Pavilion, huh. which just completely uh, br- uh, blew me away. In, in addition to some discrete graphics options with either a Radeon five hundred and thirty or an NVIDIA MX MX one hundred and thirty, so I, I really love it that uh, they're bringing these more premium features into uh, really, which what is uh, uh, the driver of volumes? Seventy five to eighty percent of all the volumes are, are in Pavilion like. Uh, price points even though you know you're if anything like me you fixate on uh, on the premium stuff
0: yeah for sure and and i think i was we talked about last year my thought that you know all these oems are doing some advancement here but i really ha- did think that hp uh was was proving that it was the most forward-looking in some of this, with some of its new Spectre designs and stuff, and, and it's nice to see. That's kind of the goal, right? As as an analyst, as a consumer, what you want to see is those premium features eventually, you know, be priced down, be able to come down into more reasonably uh, reasonable cost machines, so that everybody can take advantage of those those premium features, capabilities, you know, materials, etc. And uh, it's good to see HP diamond down there well.
1: Yeah, probably the final thing I wanted to bring out of the the conference was uh, just uh, the huge turnaround in the printing division. Um, You know, it's funny uh, when HPI and HPE were connected as Hewlett Packard, um, uh, printing was really having uh, a hard year. And while you and I may think, gosh, who prints anymore? Uh, My kids print a ton, but what HP did is they extended printing to doing uh, custom and uh, custom packaging and even printing books on demand so you, know, you see that the coke bottles that are personalized with your name uh, mm-hmm. they do that they're printing custom versions of magazines well anyways literally in in, in one year they increased revenue 31%, increased their operating profit 37%, increased supply sales by 24%, and sold 34% more printers. So hmm. uh, if you look at the profit and cash that the print division is, is throwing off, uh, it, it, is, it is one of the biggest turnarounds I've ever seen.
0: Interesting. Interesting yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't print very often, but it's 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 clear that it's got its segmentation. So
1: wait till your uh, wait till your kids get into uh, middle school. you'll be we, uh, you'll be printing again.
0: <laughs> we We have printed coloring book pages, so that does that does count, I guess. Uh, all right, um, thanks for joining us, everybody. If you want to find our previous episodes or find ways to subscribe so you don't miss when we post a new one, you can go to the Tech analysts com, or you can find the Tech Analyst podcast on iTunes, uh, Google Play, wherever else you happen to find your podcasts. And uh, we'll see you next week with another episode. Thanks, guys.